A deserted ranch, a messianic leader, devoted followers, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and some Bible thrown in for good measure. An aspiring actress on the cusp of fame, an heiress to a coffee fortune, and a cast of characters straight out of the land of broken toys. All these people came together on two August nights in 1969. The world knows the story of Charles Manson and the Tate-LaBianca murders, the who, the what, the where, but do we really know the why? Vincent Bagliosi, the district attorney who prosecuted Manson, claimed it was an attempt to start a race war, inspired by, of all people, the Beatles. Some of the participants have said it was meant to be a copycat killing to take the heat off one of the family who was under investigation for a similar crime. Charles Manson said he didn't know, that he wasn't there and he had nothing to do with it. So sit back with that classic 60s cocktail, The Vesper, and hear the strange story of Charles Manson and his family of misfits. Charles Manson was born to a 16-year-old runaway, Kathleen Cavender, in Cincinnati in 1934. No one is sure who his father was, but he may have been a steel worker and con man named Colonel Walker Henderson Scott. When Kathleen told him she was pregnant, he said he had been called away on business but would be back before the baby was born. He must have taken a wrong turn because he never showed up. Not that it mattered because before the baby was born, Kathleen married a day laborer named William Eugene Maddox. They moved to Washington where Kathleen spent most days drinking with her brother Luther. Madison had changed his name to William Eugene Manson and soon he had had enough of Kathleen and her brother and their drinking, and the baby, so he filed for divorce. When Charlie was five years old, his mother was sent to prison for assault and robbery, and he was sent to live with an aunt and uncle in West Virginia. In 1942, his mother was released from prison, and the family moved to Charleston, West Virginia, and then later to Indianapolis. So, to put it mildly, Charlie Manson did not have an idyllic childhood. In 1971, he told Diane Sawyer that when he was nine years old, he burned down his elementary school. He was never charged with this, but we do know that he began having run-ins with the police shortly after. He was a truant, and he committed petty robberies and other small crimes, and then began a series of foster homes runaways, and more foster homes. When he was 13, he was placed in the Gabalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. This place was run by Catholic priests, and they certainly believed in that old saying, spare the rod and spoil the child. A boy would be beaten with a wooden paddle or a leather strap for such minor infractions as whispering after curfew or dropping food on the floor. It should be no surprise that Charlie soon ran away, stealing food and living under bridges. He eventually made his way back to West Virginia, where his mother was staying with his aunt and uncle. She sent him back to Indiana, where he promptly ran away again. He broke into a store to steal some food and found a cigar box with $100 in it. So he took that too. He was eventually caught and sent to Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska. He and a friend, one Blackie Nelson, somehow got a gun, stole a car, and committed a series of armed robbery as they made their way to Peoria, Illinois, where Blackie's uncle ran a theft ring. He saw promise in Charlie and Blackie and took them on as his apprentices. But Charlie just wasn't a good thief. Let's be honest, he kept getting caught and he was sent to reform schools in Indiana and Washington State and California. While in Washington, he was tested. They found him to be illiterate, but to have an above average IQ. He was also, they said, 
antisocial. When he was 17, he was in a minimum security prison and was scheduled to be paroled. He was going to return to West Virginia to live with his aunt and uncle, but before his release date, he was caught raping another boy at knife point. He was transferred to a maximum security prison until he was almost 21. For the next 15 years, Charlie was in and out, well, mostly in prison, in various states and on various charges. In 1966, while he was incarcerated in Ventura, California, his release date was coming up and he asked to stay in prison because it had become his home. The authorities said, no. By this time, Charlie had spent more than half of his life incarcerated behind bars. After he was released in 1967, Manson began attracting a group of followers, mostly young women, sometimes described as proto-hippies. They ended up in San Francisco during the summer of love. They eventually moved to Southern California and the girls would support the family by begging for food, sometimes even scrounging dumpsters behind restaurants and grocery stores. By 1968, they had settled in Los Angeles. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys gave one of the girls a ride home one day and took her to his house, the house that would later be rented by Roman Pulaski and Sharon Tate. Soon, several of the other girls moved into Wilson's house and someone introduced him to Charlie Manson. While Wilson and the girls were getting high, Manson was writing songs and eventually uh, Dennis Wilson convinced uh, the rest of the band the Beach Boys to record one of Charlie's songs, which they did. Well, the family trashed the house, and when Wilson moved out, when the lease expired, the landlord evicted the rest of the family, and they ended up at an old abandoned movie set outside Los Angeles called Spawn Ranch. The owner, an 80-year-old blind man named George Spawn, let the family live there rent-free in exchange for chores and sex. Yes, Charlie instructed some of those girls to have sex with 80-year-old George for partial rent. Well, the story of the murders is well known. On August 8th and 9th, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Patricia Krenwinkel broke into two houses in Los Angeles and murdered seven people, including the actress Sharon Tate. They were tried in Los Angeles along with Charlie Manson. Manson did not participate in the actual murders, but the state alleged that he had ordered the killings. Manson always denied this. It was the trial of the century, and it lasted 22 weeks, and can charitably be described as bizarre. Early in the trial, Manson came into the courtroom with a large X that he had carved into his forehead. The next day, the three women came in with that same carving on their forehead. A few days later, all three of the girls had shaved their head. Now, I've always wondered how in the world they got access to knives and, and hair clippers in a jail, but they did. They kept interrupting the trial. At one point, uh, Manson took a pencil, a sharp pencil, and charged the judge trying to stab him while the three girls stood up on top of the counsel table and were reciting some poem in Latin. Despite all of this, they were all three convicted and sentenced to death. When the Supreme Court found the death penalty unconstitutional, all of their sentences were converted to life. Tex Watson was tried separately. He was eventually arrested in Texas and brought back. He too was sentenced to death and his sentence was commuted later to life, but none of them have ever been paroled. Charlie died in prison at the age of 83. Now there are, for me, some unanswered, maybe even unanswerable questions. First of all, how did Charlie Manson gain such control over his followers? And secondly, what was the motive for these murders? At one point, during one of his many incarcerations, Manson was diagnosed as having a manipulative personality. He seemed to be able to read people's weaknesses and then manipulate them into doing what he wanted. He seemed to have a way about him that convinced people to follow him. 
1967, Manson was known as a guru to the other hippies in San Francisco. He had also begun to study the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation. He began to tell people that the end of the world was coming and that Satan and Jesus would be reconciled to one another and then together they would judge humanity for all of their evil deeds, particularly the establishment, the man. He told his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and he implied that he himself was Jesus. He talked about seeing himself nailed to the cross. He preached against materialism. At one point, the family had a old school bus that they had converted and they had put carpet in it and they'd gotten some very nice furniture and someone asked Manson about that. How can you be against materialism and have such a nice ride? So Manson gave him the keys and he drove off and Manson didn't seem very upset at, at that. He would often kiss the feet of his followers and have them kiss his feet to show that they were all equal under the sight of God. And of course, all of this was accompanied by healthy doses of LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs. During his murder trial, Manson testified and he made what some people called Christ-like statements. One point he said, these children that come at you with knives, they're your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at the ranch that you call the family were just people that you did not want. I know this, that in your hearts and souls, you are as much responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for killing these people. I can't judge any of you. I have no malice against you and no ribbons for you. But I think that it is high time that you all start looking at yourselves and judging the lie that you live in. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. You want to kill me? Ha! I am already dead, have been all my life. I've spent 23 years in tombs that you have built. Well, what was the motive for the crimes? Well, Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor in that 22-week-long trial, said the motive was Charles Manson's desire to start a race war and eventually rule the world. He focused on the words helter-skelter that were painted on the wall in both the victims' homes in the victims' blood. Bugliosi said that this was taken from the Beatles' White Album. The murderers, Manson felt, would be blamed on the Black Panthers, and when the police came to arrest them, the Black community would rise up and a massive apocalyptic race war would ensue, with most of the white people being killed. Manson's family, during all of this, would be safe in an underground bunker in Death Valley where they were writing songs and recording music. At the end of the war, with the world in flames, the family would emerge from their bunker with their songs of peace and love, and all of the survivors would recognize them as God's chosen, and they would rule the world in peace and love for a thousand years, just as the book of Revelation prophesied. That was the story put forth by the prosecution. The three women defendants, however, presented another reason. For the murders. They said that Charlie Manson had gotten into a dispute with a drug dealer named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. Manson shot him, but Crow survived. So Charlie sent a family member, Bobby Bussol, to get money from Gary Hinman, another drug dealer and a friend of Crow. Bosalil held Hinman captive for two days and eventually stabbed him to death. Manson tried to divert attention away from the family by ordering Busalil to write Piggy on the wall in Hinman's blood, thinking the police might blame the Black Panthers. It didn't work. Hinman was arrested two days later. The women testified that 
Tex Watson decided to carry out the Tate and LaBianca murders to look like copycat killings to try to take the heat off Bobby Boussalil and the family. They wrote Piggy in the victim's blood on the door of the, of the homes. But again, it didn't work and Manson and the family were arrested later that year. Why did they do it? We may never know. A psychotic madman trying to take over the world or a two-bit criminal trying to cover up a drug deal gone bad. What do you think? Thank you, Dad. That was so good. I love a good cult story. They never get old. All right. Well, now it's time for Trends of the Crime before we get into discussing everything that was Charles Manson and the family. And believe me, I have a lot to say. Um, but I also have a lot to say about the trends of the crime. Uh, the 1960s is my favorite fashion era. So I have quite a bit of research here. Uh, Dad, please feel free to jump in while I discuss the fashion. I know that you also like the 60s and everything about it. Um, so yes, Trends of the Crime is sponsored by Style a la Mode, and that's the part of our show where I tell you about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. So we touched on the Sharon Tate murder. Sharon Tate was a model and actress on the cusp of fame, as Dad mentioned at the very beginning. Uh, she likely pulled style inspiration from London model and it girl Twiggy, who... I remember from America's Next Top Model, the early seasons, she was a judge, and that's when I was first introduced to Twiggy and started learning about her. Uh, Twiggy was the face of 66, with her twig-like figure, short hair, wide, darkly lined, and long-lashed eyes, freckles, and an innocent expression. And as I was looking up pictures of Sharon Tate, she even resembled Twiggy in publicity photos for Valley of the Dolls. She had the drawn-on lower lashes and drawn-on freckles. Have you seen that picture, Dad? I have seen that picture, and uh, I remember Twiggy from uh, things like The Ed Sullivan Show in the 1960s when I was growing up. And uh, do you know who uh, Goldie Hawn is? I do, that is Kate Hudson's mom. It is, and she yes. was on a show called Laugh-In, and she would often do an impersonation of Twiggy. Okay. So that was my first uh, exposure to Twiggy. I'll have to look that up. That's funny. And and speaking of Sharon Tate, uh, I never really knew who she was when I was growing up. But later in life, uh, I was watching reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies. And I saw her name in the credits. And she played one of the secretaries at the Commerce Bank where Jed Clampett's uh, stored his million dollars, and Jethro was always trying to hit on her. All right. He would try to impress her by ciphering for her. Why don't you uh, reenact the ciphering? All right. <laughs> not times one is not. Not times two is not. Not times three is not. And then his Uncle Jed would say, cipher on, boy. <laughs> and that was supposed to... Did it impress Sharon Tate? She never went out with him. Oh, okay. So maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> Good effort, though, I'm sure. Um, well, Twiggy put the mod style on the map. And uh, mod, my best guess, I didn't Google this, but I, I know that fashion in German is moda, M-O-D-E, how we would say mode. So I'm guessing it, the word comes from that. Um, so that's kind of like style a la mode, one of our yes, sponsors. Yes, French a la mode. Uh, yes, and mod style in the 60s was, for women, it was a lot of baby doll style dresses, kind of A-line but short, the mini dress, and pale stockings. So when you see those white transparent tights, that's what I'm talking about. And Sharon Tate actually wore this exact style on her wedding day, uh, a short baby doll style ivory dress. It had puffy sleeves and a a mock turtleneck collar. She looked super cute and with pale white stockings. Twiggy's cropped boyish hairstyle brought back the 1920s and 1930s influences like flapper dresses and male style suiting. 
so the the last three episodes, we were talking about the flapper girls and 20s and 30s style. So uh, Twiggy helped bring that back and modernize it in the 60s. And the mini dress and the mini skirt were all the rage in the mid to late 60s, uh, often paired with calf high boots like go-go boots what we would what we would think of today like white it was probably faux leather i'm guessing dad right not real leather that would be my guess (laughs) like satin leather leather my my first girlfriend Uh um, i probably shouldn't mention her name (laughs) even though she's no longer with us yeah but yeah she used to wear uh white boots okay yes but they were not real leather maybe sharon's were i mean could be. She was married to Roman Polanski, yes. so maybe. Uh, well, the mini dress was an easy and versatile way for young women uh, to dress. And its basic A-line shape flattered all shapes and sizes because it didn't hug any certain area and it hit at a good spot. Um, and they are they are coming back on mod cloth. There's a bunch of baby doll dresses. Um, well, I've got to say that, uh, you know, it makes me feel good. I'm sure it does. <laughs> Gross, Dad. Okay, uh, Andy Warhol. You know that name. I do. He was. He brought pop art, which was. How would you describe pop art? I always think of Andy Warhol with with the big Campbell soup can, maybe some psychedelic colors. Kind of like, like the that. the comic book uh, style art that we think of. Like he would trace. That's kind of coming back on Instagram where people trace a photo in black and then they make it exaggerated kind of like that but funny you say campbell soup um the super dress super spelled s-o-u-p-e-r was a mini dress that pays homage to warhol's campbell soup prints with the distinctive label multiplied into a repeating silkscreen design and the the dress so the pattern was put onto a, a simple mini dress to let the campbell soup cans really shine and it was made of cellulose and cotton. And that dress is in museums, right? It is. Very famous. Now, was this also where tie-dye shirts started to come in, or was that later? I'm not sure either. I, 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 know I don't that, know. I know in the 70s people were wearing tie-dyes, but it kind of sounds like uh, what you just described. Who knows? Yeah. Um, in my research, I didn't find anything about tie-dye, but... I'll have to look into that. It's quite possible. I know. I do know that later it definitely comes in. Um, so we know that there were many dresses and many skirts. There were also many coats, which was basically a coat version of a mini dress. And the thigh skimming nature of the mini coat challenged the established notion that women should cover up their bodies. So basically, women were saying a big, screw you, I will wear what I want, which I am here for. Um, And the hemlines continued to rise, which made the older generation shake their heads, but the young fashionistas loved the leggy look and saw it as an expression of new freedom. Well, when I was in school, and this would have been a few years later, this would have been in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, you know, the dresses were still pretty short. And uh, I would see some of my classmates at at my high school, uh, they would have to stand up uh, and if their fingertips were mm-hmm. not touching the hem of their dress, uh, they would be sent home to change clothes. That's still a a joke that is said today. Like, do you pass the fingertip test? Well, it's real. I saw yes. it. And uh, maybe if, if some of my old classmates from Dalhart are listening, um, maybe you were one of those girls who were sent home. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> um and uh, anyone my age who watched Even Stevens, I know my sister Allie, she's going to know this reference. You know that we went to the moon in 1969, not 1968, but the year after. Okay, I won't sing the whole song, but we did go to the moon in 1969 and fashion started moving into the space age. You remember the moon landing, I'm sure, Dad. Did you notice any fashion changes at this? I mean, you lived in a small town, so probably not. I would just see it on TV. Yeah. You know, or in the movies. Mm -hmm. I remember, uh, I remember the vinyl. Yes. Uh, Well, you know, actually I had a vinyl, I had a a white vinyl jacket back in 1969. Cute. I would have been 13 years old. So, yeah. 
Nice. I didn't I didn't put it up with the moon moon landing, but now I can I can see why that was. Yes. Yeah, so some examples. Uh, Pierre Cardin's Space Age collection in 1964 started the futuristic trend with metallic or shiny cloth along with synthetic fabrics such as clear and colored plastics, PVC, vinyl, and acrylic. And that trend is coming back today. I have a few pairs of shoes with clear plastic on them. Uh, It's a very popular trend that happened a couple years ago. So fashion is definitely cyclical. This Futuristic trend also brought geometric shapes, continued the A-line silhouettes, but made them a little more dramatic. Think of like the Jetsons type. Uh, Mini skirts, unisex styles, and bright colors that created futuristic ensembles that appealed to the growing youth market. And evening wear also became adventurous in the 60s with a variety of lengths, fabrics, and patterns, including floral, pop art, and bold geometric shapes. Uh, even pants were worn for evening wear by the daring woman. As we mentioned earlier, Twiggy helped bring back men's type styles for women in the mm-hmm. 60s. Uh, materials for elaborate surface decoration ranged from feathers and jewels to beads and faux fur. I remember when I was working in bridal, I, probably around from 2010 to 2013, that time range, uh, feathers were really hot on wedding dresses. Like, Every every girl who was anyone wanted feathers on her dress. And I'm glad I didn't have feathers on my dress, but some people really like feathers. Um, popular evening wear designers were uh, Givenchy, Yves Saint Laurent, Jean Muir of Jane and Jane, Emilio Pucci, and Valentino. Givenchy's famous kook skirt was designed in 1968. The cocktail dress has focused volume on the skirt created by layers of dyed black kook feathers. The feathers give the dress a unique texture and shape to the otherwise monochromatic design. It's a really cute dress. I'm going to post pictures of a lot of this stuff, um, but that dress is really, it's a, it, it's a very standout little black dress for sure. So you'll have some pictures of mini skirts, right? Just for you. Yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. So that was Sharon Tate. The it girl in the 60s, beautiful, on-trend on young woman. Now we're going to move on to her husband, Roman Polanski. The everyday look of young American men in this era consisted of slim-fit trousers, a button-up or polo shirt, and a patterned sport coat. Men's clothing was worn tighter to show off a youthful figure. Shirts were unbuttoned to show off a bit of chest, and pants were lowered down to the hip, which in the 70s I'm picturing... A man with insane chest hair, like that gross. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. But that was more seventies, but I guess it must have started in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh like his wife, Roman Don the mod style in the nineteen sixties, he was also a younger a a young man in this time. Uh he was seen in boldly patterned dress shirts with white collars, fitted blazers and rich fabrics like velvet, uh silk neckerchiefs in bright colors, and wide belts. On his wedding day to Sharon Tate, my immediate thought when I saw what Roman wore was Austin Powers. Why don't you describe what Austin Powers wore, Dad? I remember Austin Powers in a uh, in a uh, powder blue suit with a ruffled shirt sticking out, uh, shoes with, uh, I think maybe white shoes with high heels, uh, tight pants, and a wide, a wide white belt. Yes, Roman looked pretty close to this. <laughs> he was shagalicious. Shagalicious, baby. So, oh, get on, baby. <laughs> hey, baby. Okay. Uh, yes, Roman was wearing a velvet suit with the uh, white ruffle dicky hanging out of his jacket. Uh, his double-breasted suit coat had long tails, and his black slip-on shoes had a small heel, and he had that longer hair. Uh, we'll get to this later, but the movie that Dad and I watched for inspiration, he did you catch, did you see him in that outfit, yes, the yeah, actor? Yeah, the dickie. Yep. Velvet coat, everything. So Now, I have a question here. Uh, another another uh, piece of clothing I had back in 1969, uh, I actually had a Nehru jacket. Ooh, please explain. Well, the first time I saw it, I was on the TV show Mannix, and a Nehru jacket comes from the Prime Minister of, of India, 
uh, it buttons all the way to the top and just leaves a almost like a little notch you would wear at a you'd wear a, a turtleneck underneath it. Looks kind of like a priest collar. Mm. Um, and uh, I thought it was cool. And I remember we looked in the Montgomery Wards catalog last week. We talked about the Sears catalog, but uh, my my mother brought bought me a Nehru jacket for Christmas. So. Do you know anything about those? Were they in style at this point? I don't. Let me quickly look and see if I see a picture of it. It's N-E-H-R-U. Oh, yes. I did see this. Yes, so this is... In the picture, it I mean, it has to come from Indian influence. Yes, the Prime Asian, Minister yes. of India. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I was My brain was going while you were talking. Yes. His um, name was Neighbor. So... I'm guessing that this came into play kind of with the hippies who sort of took influence from other cultures mm-hmm. and everything. Would you agree? That, that sounds right to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It wasn't in the books that I get my research from. At least I didn't notice it while I was doing research. But yeah, we'll post a picture of that. Uh, finally, we are going to talk about the hippie style with the Manson family. So Manson wasn't necessarily, he wasn't a hippie, was he? The girls were. No, I don't think Manson was. He he was, I mean, he had long hair. Yeah. Longer hair. But no, I don't think he considered himself a hippie. Right. But maybe, the style. Maybe Jesus, but right. not a hippie. But definitely what they wore falls under this category out of all of the kind of buckets that the 60s style falls mm-hmm. into. Uh, so the Manson family, they were quintessential 1960s hippies, style-wise, at least. People who embodied the hippie style rejected fast fashion and sh- shopped at thrift stores instead. They purchased anything ethnic, Western, well-worn, or gender-bending. The often secondhand clothing was customized with patchwork, embroidery, and applique designs. Does this sound familiar, Dad? It I does. mean. That's what people wear today. It I live does. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, home of the Jayhawks. Rock Chalk. Co- Rock Chalk. Big big college town and all a bunch of college students I see walk and I work at at the university full time. And thrift shopping is huge, patches are huge, all of this. So this is back. Unisex clothing. Yeah. So uh, hippies were known for creating historically inspired throwback fashions. Their thrift store finds allowed them to recreate styles from the Renaissance all the way up to the Hollywood Art Deco age. The ethnic style hippie look was popular among the Manson family. This style consisted of indigenous jewelry and moccasin boots. Also in the movie, did you catch those? Mm -hmm. This style spoke to the old cultural traditions of handmade wearable art long gone from American society. Natural fabrics like suede, leather, and burlap were popular in this style. At one point during the trial, Manson walked into the courtroom uh, wearing buckskin pants and moccasins. Mm -hmm. So he obviously kind of fit that mold. Yes, for sure. Although the miniskirt was still in style, swaying maxis entered the hippie fashion space. Flares and bell bottoms were in style for pants. And this was the era that brought American blue jeans into the mainstream, and they were no longer preserved for the working class. So jeans were now a staple for everybody, no matter what you did, no matter who you were, you had jeans. And now we still wear jeans as an everyday item. Which brings me to this question. That was 50 years ago or more, 55 years ago. And uh, when we watched television shows back in the 60s and 70s about the future, uh, supposedly, by the 1990s, all the men would be in form-fitting jumpsuits. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at Star Trek; we never saw, we never saw Captain Kirk or Captain Picard in in blue jeans or polo shirts, even when they were not on duty. Um, we're still in we're still in blue jeans. What happened? Where's my cool clothes? I mean, Dad, you can wear whatever you want. You're going to look weird, but I think this is my theory on that. I've I've thought a lot about this. I studied fashion in college, K-State, EMA. Dad doesn't like that. <laughs> um, and Zeitgeist is the 
defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. So zeitgeist is like 60s fashion was mod or hippie. Mm -hmm. That's what zeitgeist is essentially. And what inspired that, the war, uh, people wanting to stop fast fashion. And that's reoccurring now as people are against fast fashion. And with climate change being such a hot hot button issue, uh, fast fashion is going under the spotlight again. Um, So I think that because history repeats itself, fashion also repeats itself and issues that happened in the 60s, we're seeing them again. Uh, And so the fashion is going to kind of reflect what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And we just haven't, we never had an era with jumpsuits and futuristic looks. So I don't know if that'll ever be a thing, like, because it's never happened. So it's not going to repeat itself. You know what I'm saying? I do. And it makes me sad. (laughs) I'll I'll buy Hey, I wear jumpsuits. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Now, also, I'm assuming by this time, hats are out of fashion. I, By the late 60s or 70s, men stopped wearing hats, except maybe ball caps or something. Is that correct? Well, there were still fedoras and... Uh, I don't want to say cowboy hats, but we've talked about it. If you can think of the name, uh, it kind of looked like a fedora, but it was more of a flat, flatter top. Yes, the Homburg. I saw those in my research okay. still, but they weren't as big as they were in the 20s and 30s. Right. I, when when John Kennedy refused to wear hats, I think that's when hats really began to, to go out of fashion for men. Um, he would He would be given hats like he'd go to Texas, they'd give him a cowboy hat, and he'd he never wanted to be photographed with a hat on after he became president. He just didn't like him. Did he not want to ruin his hair? I think that was probably it. Probably part of it. He had good hair. We'll probably get to that more I another time. Yes. yes. Uh, so I'm on my last two points. Uh, unisex fashion blossomed and clothes were gender neutral with couples often wearing the same outfits. We are seeing that again today. Uh, A lot of gender neutral designers are popping up and becoming super popular because um, why should I have to wear a skirt and my husband doesn't doesn't wear a skirt? You know, that's kind of the mentality, uh, equality for gender and everything. Uh, Today, oh, this was a quote that I found. uh, It was in Harper's Bazaar in 1968. It is a quote from Marshall McLuhan. And it says, Today, nothing is out because everything is in. Every costume from every era is now available to everyone. So that kind of culminates the hippie style and basically says they wore whatever they want and they made it stylish because they looked cool. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. Ready for our discussion? I think so, yes. Okay. Let's answer the trivia question. What movie did we watch? So what movie portrayed the Manson family? What recent movie portrayed the Manson family? You're asking me? Yes. It was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Brad Pitt. Pitt. Yes. So we watched that yesterday Mm -hmm. together. Uh, I love that movie. Did you love it? It's a very good movie. Uh, So good. Uh, yeah, we watched this for inspiration. Me, it was mainly because I love the costumes. And as I've said, I loved 60s fashion. And it was actually nominated for Best Costume Design. Uh, Ariane Phillips was the costume designer. And that was at the 2020 Oscars. They sadly did not win, but they should have because it was amazing. Um, so we're going to talk about, I want to talk about some similarities and differences in regards to the Manson family. Okay. But if you have not seen the movie, please fast forward a couple minutes and we'll, we'll keep it short. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so obviously the big difference was the end of right. the movie. It, was, it can be described as alternative history. Yes. Yeah. It was a, a classic Quentin Tarantino twist, pretty gory and just out. Uh, outrageous and like Mm -hmm. so outrageous it was funny and it was supposed to be funny Uh, so they end up going to Leonardo DiCaprio's home instead of the Tate home uh, and trying to kill what was his name Rick Dawson Mm -hmm. instead of Sharon Tate and her friends Uh, so 
and obviously in real life they went into Sharon Tate's home and they murdered her and her friends sadly uh what were some similarities you noticed well I think I think they did a, a good job you know up until the the twist in into an alternate universe of portraying what the Manson family was like you know you you saw the you saw the girls digging through dumpsters to get food um you saw the the control that Manson exercised over them because it was always Charlie says we've got to ask Charlie let's ask Charlie um now he wasn't prominently featured in the movie we I mean, saw him he, once yeah he 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 made he made that one appearance it was mainly about the family but i think they they portrayed them as really depending on and 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 taking their lead uh, from charlie manson so i thought i thought they did a good job with what, that this part always confused me why were they so weird about him talking to george the oh the owner of the ranch yes well i think they were afraid that uh, someone was going to come in and, and throw them out that they would find hey we're here taking advantage of of george we're manipulating him somehow just so we can stay here we're stealing from him and um i mean i i expected during the movie that they'd go in and george would be dead but he wasn't and uh he was evidently getting what he wanted well he that's was, why i was confused if they knew that he was happy why would they be worried about someone talking to him well, I think if George's family came by, oh. um, you know, having having sex with a 20-year-old girl and getting all your chores done uh, could be construed, as my lawyer side coming out, as exercising an undue influence to, to steal from it. So I, I think they wanted to keep that a secret. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought that... So when I first saw it, I didn't really know much about Charles Manson. I mean, I knew the name. I knew he was a cult leader, but I didn't know enough to realize that the movie was about the Charles Manson cult pretty much mm -hmm. and the murders that took place or at least one of the murders. Um, so my husband actually, he, he, st he whispered to me in the movie theater. He said, do you know what this is? I was like, no, it's just a movie. But then I was like, oh, this is amazing. And it made it so much more fun mm -hmm. to watch. Uh, so do you have any other notes from the movie you want to talk about? Um, I just thought it captured the whole 60s vibe pretty good. Mm -hmm. Very fun to watch. Very fun. All right. So that's all we're going to say in regards to any spoilers to the movie, if you haven't seen it. Uh, Dad, you mentioned you wanted to talk about Squeaky from the movie. Right. Played uh, by Dakota Fanning. Yes. Yeah. Um, Squeaky, uh, Squeaky Frome, her real name was Lynette Frome. Now, she did not take part in the murders. Um, and after the trial, um, the family, kind of, some of them stayed together, some of them drifted apart. Um, none of them, as far as I know, went on to high elective office or won Nobel Prizes. Most of them ended up in jail for on some sort of charges. <laughs> but uh, Lynette Frome, and by the way, she got her name Squeaky because uh, when she would go in for her visits with George um, to help pay rent, he would, uh, he would pinch her thigh and she would squeak like a little mouse. So oh. that's how they got the name Squeaky. But in 1975, uh, she got a pistol and uh, loaded it, but took, took, the, took the bullet out of the chamber and uh, went to a place where Gerald Ford was walking uh, walking toward his car, who was president, President Gerald Ford, and pointed the gun at him. Uh, she was immediately wrestled to the ground. The gun never went off, uh, but she was charged with attempting to assassinate the president and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, she was wow. paroled a few years ago and is now living in New York. But, you know, she said, I never meant to shoot him. In fact, I, I took the, the bullet out of the chamber uh, before I left my house. And when they went to her house, indeed, the bullet was laying on the floor of her kitchen. So... Um, I don't think she intended to fire. She wanted publicity for the family. They, a lot of them just agitated, you know, for 30 years to try to get uh, Charlie released on parole. They, mm. um, they said that um, they loved him. They, they interviewed Squeaky one time. They said, did you love Charlie? She said, yes, I did. I still do. Wow. So he held a control over them for their whole lives. Forever. That's something common in cult leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, when you mentioned 
manipulative manipulative personality they have mm-hmm. to have that mm-hmm. because I've heard this in other podcasts uh, and how they keep you. You know, they always say when a cult leader is interviewed, they always say, we're not a cult. They can leave anytime they want. Uh, And the most common one that I can think of today that's happening today is Scientology. And the leader of Scientology will say, well, they can leave whenever they want. But if you watch uh, Leah Remini's show, I can't think of the name, but she was a Scientologist and, and she has left but they learn and cult leaders learn your deepest insecurities, your deepest fears, and they will blackmail you in order for you to stay. So I, I, I wonder if he did that, um, how he manipulated them in a way that they had no like bad feelings toward him. They just loved him. I don't know of, of anyone who left the family and wrote a tell-all book and, and recanted. For what they had done. I mean, every every person I've seen interviewed or read about that was in the family still just, you know, loves Charlie Manson. So we we don't have any tell-all books about how Charlie manipulated me. He just he did. And by the way, uh, when he was in prison, um, he had to fill out a form listing his religion. What did he write? Scientology. Hmm. Would you look at that, people? Would you look at Interesting. that? Yeah. Hmm. I recently heard, uh, I can't think of her name, but she was in Parenthood. Mm-hmm. You would know her if you saw her. She's been a Scientologist her entire life. You know her. She's a well-known, like, hot girl. Mm-hmm. Erica Christian Christensen. Do you know who I'm talking about? Mm-mm. You don't know her? No, I don't. All right. Well, she was on Dax Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, and... Uh, they let her, you know, they talked, they just asked curiosity type questions about her time as a Scientologist. And she explained, you know, why she believes in it and everything. And it's just so interesting. And they have to take tests and they, they, uh, if I remember correctly, you know, they have guards everywhere. And when they're in there their whole life, like they go to school as a Scientologist, you know, they don't go to normal school. So mm-hmm. crazy. Anyway, we're talking about the Manson family. So Charlie's childhood, how do you think his childhood led to him becoming a cult leader? I saw I saw you had written that question down and you know, I don't know. I mean, he obviously had just a just a terrible childhood. He was he was small. He was a very slight man. I think he was maybe 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, skinny. Um and he was in so many juvenile detention facilities and prisons. I think maybe he just had, he developed this mechanism to, to protect himself. That uh, when, when he would see other people and bullies, he knew they were going to come after him, uh, probably physically and sexually. And I think he probably just developed this ability to see these people and, and to find out what their weaknesses are and just use his personality to, to manipulate him. Mm-hmm. That's just my five cent. That makes sense. Non-psychology major theory. Right. But yeah, he, he had a terrible, terrible childhood. I mean, I just can't imagine having to live like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know he didn't, he wasn't the physical killer of these people, but serial killers historically have horrible childhoods. Mm-hmm. So definitely affects them. Yeah. Um, yeah and and you mentioned that he had an above average IQ, which mm-hmm. is also common in cult leaders, which mm-hmm. makes sense. They need to be able to read people and understand their weaknesses and use mm-hmm. those against them to keep them around. Uh, some other genius IQ or above average IQ cult leaders were Keith Ranieri. Do you know that cult, Dad? Nexium cult? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about that later. I'm going to talk about these three briefly later. Uh, Jim Jones of People's Temple and Marshall Applegate of Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they were all either above average IQ or technical geniuses, according to their IQ. Um, and I also wanted to talk about that Beach Boys song. I didn't know that. Did mm-hmm. you know that before not this? Till, not till uh, two or three days ago when I, when I wrote this. Yeah. The song, I looked up the song, Never Learn Not to Love. I didn't know that song. I listened to it, but... It was it was the it was on the B side of one of their albums. Okay. So it, was, it wasn't a hit. It was a filler. Okay. 
Well, and I saw that it was credited to Dennis Wilson, but he altered Manson's Cease to Exist to write Never. So it was essentially the same song. Right. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, since you said that Manson wrote down Scientology as his religion, Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking before I heard that, do you think these leaders really believe the religious stuff they say, or are they using that to keep people and make people feel like I'm here for a higher purpose? Because I feel like they can't really believe what they're saying. I mean, that that's my thought, too, that there's a way to control. And if, if you can add the things we've already talked about, like, you know, being able to discern someone's weakness and being able to give them what it needs. Now, if you can add God to the equation or religion, I mean, you've got total control of people. Right. And I don't have a genius IQ, but I know that Charles Manson was not Jesus. Right. So I can't imagine Charles Manson with an above average IQ thinking he was actually thinking he was Jesus. That would be my so, thought. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think it's... And, you know, a lot of people who join cults are vulnerable and are at a low point in their lives, um, are needing a leader, are needing someone to guide them. So I think that that's another manipulation is like, I know what you need and you need to come with me. Yeah, they uh, people sometimes want a purpose in life. And if they can find someone who can give them purpose, they're going to follow them. Yep. Yep. Uh, I also thought it was ironic that Manson likely thought that in order to preach peace and love to the world, he had to ensue violence and convince his followers to murder innocent people. I thought that was ironic. Yeah, he was a racist <laughs> okay. from everything I've read, and he, he, he hated black people. And um, he was convinced that the Black Panthers, and that was a militant group back in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, he was convinced they were after him, uh, basically for some drug deals that had gone bad. Um, see, that's why I I tend to think that the motive for these crimes probably was to cover up um, the Hinman murder, okay. you know, and not some elaborate plan to start a race war and take over the world. I mean, that played well at the trial. And again, I think that they wanted the jurors to say, hey, there is, there's a greater purpose to this than, than just seven people being killed. It, it's some nut who's trying to take over the world. So I've always thought since I started reading about this that probably it was more of just a copycat killing a cover-up a drug deal than, than this elaborate plot to rule the world. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. Usually what I've learned from listening to true crime podcasts and watching all these shows, usually the simplest answer is the answer. Right. So it's not often this big elaborate plan. It's usually. Right. Yeah. I I don't think uh, Vincent Bugliosi's book would have sold near as many copies if it had just been about a bad drug deal. But when you can tie Helter Skelter and the Beatles and the Black Panthers and a race war all of a sudden now it becomes a it becomes a bestseller. So Very compelling, yes. I think that's probably what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also, for those who maybe don't listen to content and read things about cults like I do, uh, I did want to quickly define what a cult is. Uh, it is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed towards a particular figure or object. Uh, I also listed some other famous cults that have happened. Uh, Heaven's Gate, which was a UFO religious group near San Diego. Didn't they believe that a UFO was waiting to take them to heaven? Yes. Yes. Okay. Which I think (laughs) either heaven and heaven was on another planet. Yes. Something like that. Um, This was led by Marshall Applegate from 1974 to 1997 and Bonnie Nettles. There is a podcast called Heaven's Gate. I would recommend, highly recommend. It just goes into more detail about this. Uh, They had a mass suicide in 1997 and the mass suicide to them wasn't just suicide. It was 
they were graduating from the human evolutionary level and they were getting on their ship to go to heaven and live an eternal life. Um, so yes, uh, People's Temple, that was Jonestown led by Jim Jones. This was where Drink the Kool-Aid came from. They drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid to kill themselves. Although many didn't want to die by the time the Kool-Aid was given to them. They wanted to leave, but it was either our guards are going to shoot you or you're going to drink the Kool-Aid. Right. Um, they were down in Guyana in, in Central or South America, and a congressional delegation had, had come down because they had reports from parents and family members, you know, our people are held down here and they don't want to leave. And so when the congressional delegation arrived to see if that was the case, um, when the congressman and his aide stepped off the plane, they were immediately shot. And they said, well, now they're going to come down and kill us all. So we've just got to mm -hmm. drink the Kool-Aid. And they did either voluntarily or with a gun to their head. 900 people. Yep. That was the biggest. Children included. Yes. Uh, that was the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act prior to the September 11th terrorist attacks. 909. Yes. The, the interesting thing about People's Temple, they were up in San Francisco, and they started out just, uh, they were doing amazing, they were doing good mm -hmm. work. They were, they were promoting uh, social justice and racial justice. They had food banks, um, but they went off the rails. Yep. Jim Jones got control of them and... and um, well, and something I learned that was really interesting is that a congressman, right? He was a congressman mm -hmm. who was killed uh, before he had come there and they filmed a CNN special. Uh, and people were sliding him notes saying, get me out of here sort of thing, or I don't want to be here anymore. And that's when he started to realize, okay, we need to come back and like save these people. And that's when they shot, I think that's what happened. Uh, and that's when they shot them and did the whole drink yeah. the Kool-Aid thing. So yeah, cause they wanted to show, CNN was wanting to know what this was. And they were like, oh, this is a great place and blah, blah, blah. So very, very interesting. Uh, the final one I have is the Nexium cult. This was led by Keith Ranieri. This is still in existence. It started not long ago in 1988, 32 years ago. Um, and it actually is uh, labeled, I guess, uh, as an MLM or multi-level marketing uh, company based near Albany, New York. Uh, but because of other things that they do, it is widely described as a cult. And not because it's an MLM, but because of other things. Um, they. Uh, so the MLM part offers personal and professional development seminars through its executive success programs, but the company is called a cult because it is alleged to have been a recruiting platform for a secret society called DOS or The Vow, in which women were branded and forced into sex slavery. Did you know that the Smallville actress Alice Mack is second to Keith Raniere in this cult death? I didn't know that. Yep. And she and Keith have been arrested. Uh, they were arrested in 2018, arrested and indicted on federal charges related to DOS, including sex trafficking in early 2018. I don't think they've gone to trial yet. but I Yeah, know. I don't think they're in jail. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, when it does go to trial. Yes, there is a podcast about this as well. Um, but let us know if you, wanna, if you want more in-depth uh, stuff about these. Um, very interesting and they're all over you can find youtube videos about this stuff or podcasts and everything uh yeah dad do you have anything else you want to say about the manson family or cults or anything you know this is this is kind of the dad part coming in i guess but you know have confidence in yourself i i don't think we need we don't need uh, false leaders to give us purpose we we can find our own purpose in life without that so trust yourself hmm Thank you, Dad. You're that, welcome. That's a good, a good note to end on. All right. Well, uh, next week we are going to be covering the crime of Bernie Tita, who has a a movie based off of him and the crime he committed, uh, called Bernie, starring Jack Black. And the trivia question is, Dad, what gospel hymn is Bernie singing as he is driving his car uh, down the street? 
All right. Let us know on the Facebook group what you think, and we will see you next week. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merchandise. There is a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mays. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.